Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The socialist comedy podcast for everyone. And I'm Kate Willett. I'm Juan del Sheikhi. And today we are joined by somebody that I have been following for a long time um, since his uh, campaign running for office in New York with DSA. And I'm just super excited to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Michael Hollingsworth. Hey, thanks for having me back. So um, you have been a Brooklyn resident for a long time, right? Like you've been living in New York City for... Yeah, my entire life. I was born and raised here. And um, what made you when you what made you decide that you wanted to run for office? And I know that you have evolved other things since then, but just getting a sense of your trajectory over the past few years. Yeah, I mean, it um, it was really definitely issues of like gentrification. Um, so for folks who don't know, uh, members of city, I ran for city council and in New York City. City council um, folks really have like three areas where they can have influence. Um, mm-hmm. so one is on the budget. Um, the second one is in terms of like uh, making legislation. And the third one, which I don't think a lot of people realize or talk about is issues of rezoning and land use. Um, mm-hmm. so they get to decide, you know, in many cases, you know, um, how our neighborhoods are developed. And that was the one area that really, um, stood out to me and, you know, for years, uh, me, I'm, so I'm also a member of a group called the Crown Nice Tenant Union, as well as New York City DSA. And so for years, uh, members of the Crown Heights Tenant Union have been pushing back against rezonings in Southern Crown Heights. Um, and it was gonna be an open seat. And, you know, we just felt like we needed to at least try to run and if we were to win, you know, we'd finally have someone in there who actually um, isn't going to sort of bend over backwards for real estate and just let them have free reign um, over our neighborhoods. And um, so, yeah, we, you know, I, it was definitely worth doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I always think my position is um, there should always be a, a left option to um, sort of the, in any race, there's always going to be what you can call sort of the establishment folks. So the people who will be like more of the same. And in those races, I think it's always important to have an actual left choice. So I feel mm-hmm. like we, we provided that for people. And then you and then you let the people decide. But um, people should have a choice to not just continue to vote for the same people over and over. Um, and, you know, we gave folks a left option for real. Um, and I think that was important. I think so too. And, you know, it just seems like sometimes they just spend so much, I mean, all the time they spend so much money to defeat the left option that it can feel very, you know, sometimes, sometimes the left option wins, sometimes the left option wins and then is co-opted by these real estate forces, you know, or like, yeah, but it it feels like an uphill battle sometimes. And I, I'm wondering where your head is at politically now and like what you think a path forward is now. Um, well, first, before I answer, like where my head is now, um, I do have to mention because uh, 
you talked about how they how they'll throw like tons of money at you. And one of the things that was fascinating about our race, and it's amazing that like this hasn't been talked about, you know, more broadly. So in total, th- there were somewhere around like 500 people who ran for city council um, seats in 2021, including myself, right? Like all over the city, right? So there was like a total of like 500 people. Um, do you all want to guess who was the number one target for real estate folks in terms of money spent against them? I have a guess, but uh, I'm going to guess it was you. Yeah, well, that's my guess too. Yeah. Yes, it was me. Um, our campaign had the most real estate money um, and pro real estate money spent against us um, or in support of our opponent. And to me, the amazing thing was like, I had no, I had no, um, um, I hadn't run for office before. Right. So like, I wasn't like a known commodity in terms of like this big, bad, scary person. Um, the only thing I had was a history of actually fighting against and winning against real estate. Like the, mm-hmm. we, we, you know, I could actually point to accomplishments we, we did. And, yeah. and that scared the, you know, what out of them. Um, and it was amazing to see that like, again, like someone like me with no name recognition, um, how big a target um, I had uh, on, you know, on me. And um, I guess I should be proud of that. Right. Because yeah, they didn't absolutely. Want, yeah. They didn't obviously didn't want someone who was an actual committed um, socialist who actually has principles. Um, and this actually leads into uh, the second part of the question. Katie had asked me sort of like, where I am today. Um, and I'm kind of like struggling, like where I fit in on the sort of spectrum of things. Um, I used to, if you would have asked me two years ago, I would have said that I'm not, I'm an absolute leftist, you know, I'm the most left person. Um, but a couple of things have sort of changed, um, my thinking. Um, so the first was, uh, during our campaign, um, again, like I was the only person in the race who actually had like a clear record of like fighting against like capital, mm-hmm. fighting against elected officials. And I would constantly be told by people um, that I'm not, that either me and someone else were were kind of the same mm-hmm. um, or that I'm not really as left as I should be, uh, which is weird. Um, and the second thing would be last summer and this time around all around june of last year the new city council which was um which was often um talked about as being the most progressive and most diverse city council ever um mm-hmm. they voted to defund our schools and to give more money back to the nypd in their budget and the budget they passed um i believe it was mm-hmm. 40, 43 of those members and there was really no pushback from what you would think is the New York left. So whether that's like nonprofit folks, um, individuals, other elected mm-hmm. officials, no, there was there were there was no pushback on these council members who, in many cases, um, ran on defunding the NYPD. Whether whether they use like I use the term defund, but even if you didn't use defund, everyone who ran, and especially the folks who won, they you know, they talked about some form of taking money from the NYPD and putting Absolutely, it in yeah. right? Um, 
And then they get into office and they do the exact opposite. And there's been like no accountability. Um, And it's been really disappointing to see, again, whatever the New York left is, how many people have just like completely forgotten that, um, not held people accountable. Um, A lot of people have shifted the blame directly to the mayor as if the mayor is a king or a dictator. Um, And... So those things have had me sort of like feeling a little anxious in terms of like identifying myself as a leftist because I don't know what a leftist means anymore. Like yeah. if you have, no, yeah. you know, if you don't have principle, like I, I always believed in like standing and uh, standing um, in your principles and and uh, and see that people can just sort of disregard what they say they believe in so you know so easily. And again, no accountability. Um, so it's ha- it has me sort of questioning, like, do I even belong in this space? I obviously will never belong in a right wing space, you know, obviously. But I don't know if I if I belong in this space. I, I guess I'm looking for my people. My people are people who are actually principled um, and, and, and who are held accountable. I, uh, you know, I, I definitely trusted that you would never be in a right wing space because a lot of times when someone wants to talk about how they're not sure that they're a leftist anymore, I just know it's going to be something about cancel culture. And I'm like, let's not do it. (laughs) They're like, actually, I've been listening to this podcast called the Joe Rogan experience. And I'm like, "Ah, I didn't think that was you. (laughs) I thought probably pretty principled (laughs) feeling. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking about when you told me that, that w- w- in advance of this episode, when you were, you know, talking about that, you know, how you, you weren't sure that you're where you fit in and you know what you're talking about right now. I was thinking, you know, because you have engaged in so many battles around, uh, you know, things in housing in particular. And it's like, you know, I'd imagine that even though you have won a lot of those battles, it's just very crushing to be taking on the real estate industry because they usually win like a, a track record where you beat them. Some percentage of the time is an amazing track record, but it's just like, it just completely controls New York politics, which is why it's so wild. People are saying that they need more power. Like, yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine what more power even would look like at this point. I'm like, you guys just have everything. Yeah. Yeah. But they, but they, they want more. And it's, um, I was, I was actually, I had a conversation with a friend I hadn't seen in about a year last week. And we were talking about a couple of, um, upcoming rezoning fights. And I admitted to her that, um, that even though I'm sort of, I don't want to spill too much. Well, right now I'm, now that I'm back in New York, we know about a couple of rezonings that are planned for the future. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to build a, a coalition of like black tenants and black homeowners um, mm-hmm. as an alliance to push back against this. Um, but even as I was explaining to her what I was trying to do or what I'm going to be trying to do, um, I told her, I was like, but I'm also tired. Like I'm tired of like every year having to fight real estate folks because our system is so corrupt um, and it's uh, and it's and it's so weighted weighted so heavily in their favor, um, and it is tiring. Um, oh yeah, it's, it's so draining just to keep, feel like you have to keep doing that over and over again, 
And like Kate said, like not like winning a percentage, but like then just, you know, these are just people with so much fucking money. And then yeah. like you, like you said, you see people who are supposed to be on the left as well. Not, you know, either not fighting back or just like, you know, going with the flow and you're like, what is, what is, what am I compared to these people? And I know that you say that you're not, you like, am I a leftist or not? But I'm just like, it's an ironic because I feel like that question should be asked to those people. I'm like, are yeah. you actually a leftist? Because you, you know, you just use the label and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's because we've we've for, for too long we've we've sort of just let people get away with this thing where like if I say I'm a thing, then I'm that. I don't have yeah. to have a track. I don't yeah, I don't have to have a track record of it, but I say that I'm progressive, so I'm a progressive. I say that I'm a socialist, so I'm a socialist. And I think um and, and that's a that's a real problem. Um my like, my theory about that is it's like I think a lot of it, like a lot of that impulse sort of comes from the fact that there's some things from for which that is appropriate. Like I'm a bisexual <laughs> and like it's like a thing where if someone says they're bisexual, you can't be like, oh, well, how many people have you dated of, you know, which gender you just believe people. But that's not true with political labels, with political labels. There are things that you have to have to back it up or at least positions on issues or at least certain intents or whatever. Like it can't just be like, Oh yeah, by the way, I love every war and I stand for capital all day long and I'm a communist. What? You know? Like, yeah, exactly. You might be bisexual, but you're not a communist, sir. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, but I think, again, I think part of that goes back to the, like, no one is holding anyone accountable um, anymore like in our spaces. And I think, I think the ma a major difference for me is, you know, like I got into, I got into work um, doing housing organizing, tenant organizing mm -hmm. um, on a, as a, on a volunteer basis. And we hold each other accountable, right? Like if somebody screws up, you know, uh, you know, we'll call them out. Right. And there are consequences uh, I think when you get in the political space, there are just so many grifters and so many, everybody's just looking, you know, just to take care of themselves and their friends. Um, and, you know, t ideally voters should hold electeds accountable. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that, that the city council, the most diverse um, city council in history, uh, defunded our school kids. They did that in last June. And then in September, a lot of them went around to their districts um, on the first day of school and they were taking selfies with kids and parents. And mm. for me, I was like, you know, I'm not a parent, but I'm an uncle. I've helped you know, raise my nieces and nephew. And I was like, um, I don't know how you could have someone, you know, I'm gonna be blunt, how you could have someone basically rat fuck your kid in June and then in September, you're like smiling and taking uh, selfies with them. And that's yeah, what parents, that's, really what parents that's what, and so it's like, there's no accountability. Like the parents should have been like angry. They should have like ran them out of the school. Right. But yeah. like, the voters voter, the majority of voters, you don't, they don't hold their elected officials accountable. And um, they think that their job is done once they vote. And then it's sort of like, you know, see in two years, see in four years. Um, that's not yeah. the way to work. I mean, when you're talking, when you're talking about this, I am I'm thinking about, you know, how much of this is kind of a 
or maybe even all of it is sort of a learned helplessness and what we do about that where you know it's just like even you know like even with joe biden even when he goes against the grain on extremely mainstream positions like we Mm -hmm. should have a public option for health insurance he never brings that up anymore campaigns on it all the time you know it was like that was you know the thing that was like oh bernie got him to embrace the public option like he just literally never brings it up and nobody Hold him to that, not even leftists, but I think it's like because, you know, we've just all seen so many times that we kind of can't do anything. And, you know, I think people just don't know what to do to some extent and so end up excusing things that maybe they even really could do something about, like their city council member. That's like an area where people, I think, do have some degree of influence, you know. So how do we get out of how do we get people to have at least enough hope again to take some action. Yeah, I think we, you know, we have more power than we, I think we'd like to admit. You know, mm-hmm. I think about um during the first, you know, few months of the pandemic when nobody was working. Yeah. How scared capital was. Like people were freaking out, like the business owners, and like imagine if we actually had like a uh an actual nationwide strike where workers finally decided to like take back our power like the the pandemic showed us the power the the, the pandemic highlighted that we're you know we're the ones that actually keep this thing moving um and yeah. should have it should have been a lesson to us to to realize that hey we have some collective power here like these people who technically are in charge they need us a lot more than we need them right <laughs> Um, and yeah, we, so, you know, we, as voters, we, as citizens, we have power. I just think that we are, we're scared to sort of use it, to exercise it. Um, and we all, I think the majority of us know that we have a really corrupt government from the city to the state, to the federal level. Um, it just, you know, I don't know what it's going to take for us to actually just finally sort of push back. I actually wonder if like, this um this sort of ai thing that's happening now you know there are tons of people who are afraid that they're going to lose their jobs right like artists yeah uh, um yeah and, and not just like like all types of artists like uh, musical artists whether you paint and draw and so now people are freaking out and i just wonder if this is sort of like the next wave um uh, um it'll sort of like wipe out jobs in america right obviously you know we used to have tons of um, factory jobs and then those were like shipped uh, overseas. And that's why the Midwest is decimated now, right? Like they aren't, you know, they aren't the jobs they used to be. And I just wonder if like this AI thing will be like the next wave to wipe out a bunch of jobs. And if we'll sort of like push back against it. Um, I think you're almost certainly right about the first thing. Like I, there's no way that it's not going to wipe out a bunch of jobs. There's, there's, of, of course, of course it will. And not just artists, you know, really like so many, so many different sectors, software engineers, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people who are on Twitter all day bragging about how AI is taking everyone else's job. I'm like, dude, you have the easiest job for AI to come for. So I would, exactly. you know, but yeah, th- I mean, there is a, there is a future where AI could benefit us because we could, you know, all have a little bit more time to relax and redistribute the resources so that everyone has enough, but we also just don't 
have to work as hard and have, you know, more leisure and creative time with friends and family. But yeah, that's not, that's not going to happen. So if this will be, if this will be the time that people fight back, that would be, that would be awesome. I don't know yeah. what happened though. No, it's interesting just seeing like AI is supposed to be doing the hard work, like manual, like manual stuff or like, you know, the stuff that takes time. And now it's just like painting and drawing and writing. I'm like, no, why are you doing just hobbies? Yeah, AI like, is going to be an English major. It's exactly. Just, just doing yeah. the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. AI's parents are extremely disappointed in it. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I was thinking, because I, I'm in, I'm, I'm doing a show in New Orleans right now. And today I went to a museum that was a really cool museum. Uh, it's, a, it's called the Museum of Living History of the Ninth Ward. And there was one of the exhibits that really touched on, you know, what real estate developers have done to people in this city, the disaster capitalism. And it's so profoundly cruel, you know, and I think, like, I think part of the reason that people don't push back sometimes harder on, you know, this development stuff, gentrification, you know, having, you know, jobs taken by AI and stuff is because it's just like existentially very difficult to admit, like the amount of, you know, I'll say evil that we're up against some of the time, like it's terrifying. I agree. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that too. And you know, I think I think also for a lot of people, um I understand like a lot of people have busy lives, right? Like people are, you know, some people are working like multiple jobs. Um, you know, they've got kids. Mm-hmm. And you know, to delve into this other stuff is, you know, it's a bit tedious. Um and so I I, I understand it at some level, but the other side of me is like you know, you've got to, you've got to care about like sort of your, you know, what's happening in your neighborhood and like try to, try to find a way to get plugged in. Um, even if it's only like a couple of hours a week, you know, yeah. join, join a community board, like join a tenant association or a block association. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people don't see how all of these things are connected. You know, they see them as like a separate thing from them that will not affect them. And it's like, no, like you are part of this community and you have to make sure like you hold people accountable, like be an active member of it. But they're like, no, I'm just doing my job. This is not my thing. And I'm like, it will come back and haunt you eventually. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So many people, um, uh, I've had that conversation with tons of people. Um, you know, so yeah, can I, I want to just tell you sort of a quick story. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm sure your podcast goes all across the world, but I want to talk about a New York specific issue. So here in New York Mm -hmm. city, there's something called the rent guidelines board. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's nine members appointed by the mayor who every year just look at a bunch of data and decide whether or not uh, the 1 million rent stabilized units um, in the city, um, whether or not the landlords will get a, a bump, uh, um an increase in rent and um so the mayor is right now is obviously eric adams um who is you know really indebted to real estate like he's a he's a big real estate guy um and so last year um after the rent guidelines board um voted to increase rents on rent stabilized tenants 
I had a meeting with about 30 um, rent-stabilized tenants, all Black, so either Black American or Black Caribbean, mm-hmm. and a lot of like, um, city workers. So this was Eric Adams' like prime base, like the people who put him into office. Mm-hmm. Um, and I explained to them that, you know, that we're going to get a rent increase. And then obviously everyone was mad. And so I was curious and I said to them, I said, how many of you know that Eric Adams basically increased your rent because he decides who who's appointed to the board and nobody knew that Eric Adams had that power as mayor, right? They had no idea that he could actually decide whether or not you get a rent increase. And then I said, um, had you known that before you voted for him, um, would you still have voted for him? And I don't know, like 98% of the people said, had they known that the mayor had this particular power and that Eric Adams was basically a tool of real estate, they wouldn't have voted for him. And it was illustrating to me that like, there's an information gap. So voters, Mm -hmm. you know, so like if voters actually have a lot of the info they need, they probably would make different decisions, um, especially when it comes to mayor. Yeah. Um, But yeah, but they just don't know that. And I thought that was sort of interesting for sure. It's so hard to get the information that you need to make political decisions. Like you're definitely not going to get it in media and online. You know, there's people who know what they're talking about online, but there's also a lot of wackos who are just making anything up. So it's difficult to discern who to trust. And as you were saying, you know, people don't necessarily have a ton of time when they're working all these jobs and trying to take care of their family. Yeah, a lot of people vote on what the kids call vibes. Yeah, um, vibes-based voting. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, though so I think Eric Adams fails on that one too. He's got this like really annoying life coach vibe. That's kind of a, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but here's a, here's another um uh thing that hopefully your audience will find fascinating. So um, we were, I was running for city council at the same time that Adams was running for mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm out knocking on doors and talking to voters, it wasn't uncommon uh, at the end of our conversation for them to say to me, well, hey, who do you like for mayor? And for some reason, I, I think they feel like candidates had a, some great insight. So in the beginning, uh, when people used to say to me, like, who do you like for mayor? I would, o- I, was o- I would always answer honestly, and I would tell them who I like. But I could always see as I'm looking in their face, and there were tons of people running for mayor. I could always tell that their expression would change as I'm naming people because who, who I thought or who I supported wasn't who they had in mind. Yeah. So I realized, so I realized that I, I quickly realized that like, I shouldn't do that. So I, what I started doing was like, whenever they would say to me, who do you like for mayor? I basically just turn it back on them. I'd be like, well, who do you like for mayor? That way I, you know, I won't offend them. Right. Yeah. And particularly with black voters, like the majority of black voters, would always say Eric Adams. And once in a while, I'd be curious. So I'd say to them, I'd say, um, well, well, what do you like about him? I'd say, you know, he was in uh, the state Senate and he was a borough president. Like, what did he actually do in those jobs that you like? And I would always get the same answer. And it was always this. They'd go like, well, hmm, you know, well, I've seen him around. Yeah. I've either seen him like at a parade or I've seen him at TV, but nobody ever was able to actually identify anything he did as a legislator or as an executive. And 
for me, that was really eye-opening. And I think it illustrates that like a lot of our voters just don't actually care about actual accomplishments or, you know, policy. It's about like, have I seen you on TV? Have I seen you here and there? And they equate visibility with actual um, competence um, and accomplish accomplishments. Uh, and it's a, that was a really sort of weird thing to see happening. Um, and unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people will vote. Um, and we'll probably continue to vote. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it is like, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And it's also really hard. Like I'm somebody who like, I do try to find people's, you know, position on issues and what they, everything they've done in the past. And sometimes even if you're really, really, really looking for it, you know, for something like a podcast to have accurate information, like it's still hard. It's still hard to find all the information that you need, even if you're trying, like, because it's so deliberately obscured. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, what I try to tell people too, is I'll, I'll say, um, always look for like the DSA endorsed candidate, which yep. is a good sign. Um, but obviously we don't endorse everywhere. Uh, and if there isn't a DSA candidate, I, I usually I try not to not to vote for incumbents, yeah. not to vote for people who have who have um, been hanging around politics. So, like, I won't vote for like former staffers. I won't vote for like, um, you know, certain members who have been like on community boards. Like if you've been part of the. If you've been part of like the mess, um, then why yeah. would I vote to have you continue to be part of it? Um, I didn't vote for, um, like, you know, I don't know if I should say his name, but I don't know. If, uh, yeah. I basically don't vote for people who are trying to sort of move up. So from like city council to like controller or from controller to mayor, like I, I, I always got him a way to make sure because, um, in my opinion, you should only be moved up from one office to another, um, if you're good. And yeah, yeah. 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 You'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find like 10 actual good elected officials in in the state and yeah so i i just try to vote, uh, i just try to vote for people who have who, who've never been part of um the the establishment for sure i think that those seem like very reasonable and thoughtful guidelines um you you, you know you've been spending some time in chicago and a lot of people there have been talking about Brandon Johnson's victory and, you know, what potential that that has, you know, for the city of Chicago, obviously he's way better than Lori Lightfoot, who is horrible. But I mean, like, you know, in terms of Johnson's victory and also like, you know, just, you know, this trend of like perhaps unions gaining a little bit more political power. Uh, do you find any optimism there? Yeah, I think one of the I think one of the bright spots, um, and I got a chance to do a little bit of canvassing for him. I think one of the I, one of the things I would say is like voters of every stripe um, had crime as their number one issue, right? Whether I, whether I was in the north side or the south side, talking to white voters, um, black voters, crime was always like the top three issues always to come up was crime, CTA, which is their transit. Um, and housing, but crime was everyone's number one issue. Mm. Unlike unlike New York City, Chicago has a legit crime issue, right? New York, it's made up, it's fabricated. Um, 
And I say that as someone who's lived here in my entire life. I've seen New York in in, in much worse shape, right? Um, so the folks in Chicago were dealing with an actual crime um, problem, and they voted for the guy who is more progressive. And I think part of that, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one is the entirety of their media, I don't think, wasn't pushing the narrative that, you know, Johnson is this big, scary communist who's going to, you know, let all the criminals go. In New York, it's sort of the opposite. In New York, like all of the papers and the t- and the TV shows, you know, every day it was like crime is out of control, blah, blah, blah. I think that was huge. And also, I think a huge difference is um, I think the Chicago Teachers Union um, is now, without a doubt, the most powerful union in Chicago. It was mm-hmm. actually interesting because it was sort of like the teachers union versus the fraternal order of police in Chicago. It's like, see which one wins. And obviously the teachers union won, right? They actually like put resources into his race, um, in terms of like money and volunteers. And, um, that was really inspiring to see. We don't have a huge progressive union in New York city, right? Like mm-hmm. all of the, Adams will be up for re-election in 2025, and you'll see all of the unions either re-endorse him or maybe some folks will like sit out. But there isn't a leftist, there isn't a left-leaning, powerful union in New York City. Um, and so that's a huge difference. Uh, I think, and that's a big part of why Johnson won. And, you know, people just weren't buying um, or they weren't falling for sort of the Vallis Dallas was the was the Republican running as a as a mm-hmm. centrist, centrist Democrat. Um, black and black folks made the difference in the race too. By the way, um, after the runoff, um, Johnson won overwhelmingly um, uh, in the black community. I think by like eighty percent or something. Dallas actually won all other racial groups, but mm-hmm. not by a huge um, margin. Not by a huge enough margin. Like I think Dallas won like. People on like 50, I think like 52% of um, Hispanic voters and Johnson won like 46 or something like that. Um, and so black voters definitely. And the other thing that's interesting is like black voters who are the most likely to be victims of crime mm-hmm. um, voted for the guy who they were trying to paint as like soft on crime. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Black, yeah. The black voters in Chicago, I think, were a little more sophisticated um, in looking at things, and they they didn't buy um, some of the narratives that were being pushed about Johnson. And you know, that's um, that's something I think people should pay attention to, like in New York, whether it's whether someone's going to challenge Adams in twenty twenty five from the left or in twenty twenty nine. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be afraid of, of of being, you know, labeled as like soft on crime. Instead, they should like fight back and say, "No, this is my, um, this is my, you know, this is my idea in, in terms of like how we're going to combat crime." So, so I thought that was sort of interesting. Yeah, I, I was I was going to say there's been this there's been a trend for I don't know maybe it's been a trend for a long time, but I've noticed it a couple years ago or especially during the Bernie campaign, really even 2016 Bernie. But, you know, what to me, I see a lot of powerful neoliberal Democrats, often white neoliberal Democrats, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden or whatever. They want to have conservative politics. And so they will say 
you know, like they they will frame it in terms of black voters. They'll be like black voters actually love the police. You know, black voters do not support, you know, universal health care or something like that. And to me, it feels like a very, you know, cynical strategy because they're doing those, you know, Joe Biden or whatever, he's doing what he wants to do anyway. It's, you know, what's good for capital, but it gets framed as like, you know, it's somehow uh, anti-racist to let people have no health care or something like that. It's just, to me, it seems wild. I don't know. Have you noticed that? And if so, what do you think about it? Yeah, it's actually funny. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Biden was at, I think, Howard University. And um, he mentioned white supremacy as being a, a, the number one threat or something like that. Um, and sort of a lot of the like black boule class was like all excited, like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, he's, and to me, I was like, this is the same person who, about a year ago, like stood up in front of, um, I think it was at his first uh, State of the Union. You know, he stood up in front of the country and said, fund the police, fund the police. Right? Yeah. Police agencies have shown themselves to be, you know, to have some of the most, you know, have to be filled with some of the country's um, most uh, uh, vicious white supremacists are in law enforcement. Yeah. And so when he said that at Howard a couple of weeks ago, I was like, oh, must be election time. Like, so they're prepping, you know, all of their talking points to sort of pander, particularly the black folks. And uh, the the part you mentioned about, um, you know, black people, how we how we feel about like police. See, I don't think black people, I don't think black people like hate police, like, you know, like hate police, but they hate a couple of things. They hate the the way that police come into our neighborhoods and and look at themselves as like an occupying force, right? Mm -hmm. They don't look at the people who live in our communities as citizens to be served, right? But just like perps are um, our perspective perps to like be squashed. That's the way they look at us. Um, And, you know, for, for me, one of the things that's always fascinating is how, I mean, everybody knows, you know, all Democrats like Biden, they understand that like neighborhoods that are black, that have a lot of poverty and a lot of crime, it's easier for them, you know, to just say, oh, let's throw more police in there and that'll sort of solve the the problem. Um, but they never actually want to deal with the, with the root cause um, of the crime. And that is obviously poverty. Uh, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's disingenuous. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of faith in, in, um, in politicians in general and especially at the federal level. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm sort of, I'm sort of done with, with Biden. And the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even like the most recent state of the union, he had the parents of, um, uh, one of the victims of like police brutality and, you know, uh, had the whole crowd stand up and clap for them and all of that stuff. And then immediately went on to police officers put their lives on the line every day and they do so much work and like they have to be so much. And I know cops are so, so many good people. And it's just like, what is the point? Literally like, and those like, like parents have to sit there and just listen to him talk about how good cops are. I'm like, that's not, what are you doing? Yeah. It's the, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the pandering that they do. 
every election cycle. Um, and they're, they're just sort of like, you know, it's, the machine is starting to sort of crank up now ahead of 2024. Um, but, you know, yeah. they love and they, and they and they particularly love to, to you know, to um, to basically do that with black communities um, where they'll go out and they'll, you know, they'll give, you know, they'll pander and, you know, they'll say a couple of keywords here or there, but there's never actually any, any policy to sort of, you know, um, uh, to actually follow up on their rhetoric. So it's one yeah. of the reasons why I've, I've just sort of tuned out, um, you know, Democrats at the, at the federal level. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I want to make sure we talk about something that you, you, I think we're all really passionate about, and you have done a lot of work on, um, which is public housing and, you know, specifically like what the threat to existing public housing in this in this country is right now, you know, in Chicago and New York and anywhere else you want to talk about. Yeah, so it was fascinating. I had a chance to um, do some research when I was in Chicago. Um, and Chicago at one time had a pretty robust public housing um, system. Mm -hmm. uh, today, there's only like, I think less than 150 units remaining. Yeah, that's um, almost nothing. Yeah, I um, and there were there used to be tens of thousands of units, um, and so obviously, um, uh, some of this goes back into the history uh, of Chicago. But um, when Black folks started migrating to Chicago, um, obviously some of the white people that were there didn't want Black people living in their neighborhoods because they were racist. Um, so what they decided to do was they basically decided to sort of um, do slum clearance. Um, and that's where they built the public housing for black folks to live. So they built these huge developments and that was where all of the black folks were supposed to be um, put into. But there was never sort of, there was never anything else other than the housing. Like there weren't jobs, there weren't like social services, there weren't all of the things, mm -hmm. all of the other things every other community has in, in order to succeed. Um, they didn't have right they just had like lots of black people concentrated in this one area and lots of poverty so obviously whenever you have poverty you're gonna have crime so the chicago projects were um riddled with crime for like decades and in the sort of mid 90s i guess some elected officials and some real estate folks said you know our big idea is we're going to come up with this thing called the plan for transformation and basically um, the name is already the name is already weird, but the idea was that they were going to demolish um, the majority of the um, the projects and then replace it with a mix of um, like market rate and affordable, you know, the same garbage that we hear like you know here in New York City. Um, but it was going to displace thousands of people, which it did. And if you ever walk around Cabrini Green today, um, there are only a few of the row houses. I don't know if anybody, if anybody listening to this has ever saw the movie Candyman, particularly the remake. Um, part of it um, is shot at the Cabrini row houses, um, and the majority of them today are basically sort of fenced off, like nobody lives there. Um, it's about they're about two city blocks, so like one entire block is completely fenced off. Like I said, the windows are boarded up. No one lives there. There are only a few row houses that are still occupied. Um, but all around um, the row houses are like condos, either condos that are built, million dollar condos built, or new ones going up. Like 
um, if you were to walk around there, it would be like a Yimby's like wet dream, right? Like oh. because all, all you see is cranes like everywhere, just like you know. They, I think they have actual wet dreams about that. I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so gross. Yeah. I think that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, yeah, I think that yeah, I think they definitely get turned on by that. So like that would be their, you know, that would be the perfect place for them to go. And and it's just bizarre seeing um this place that used to have thousands and thousands of black people. Um and you hardly if you walk around there, you know, for an hour, you may see like 10 or 15 black people. Um mm-hmm. and and I think people in New York should be aware of like that history and also, you know, be cautious about, you know, plans to sort of, you know, privatize NYCHA. NYCHA is the last bit of remaining truly affordable housing in New York. Um, and it's obviously, you know, obviously the main problem is that NYCHA is no longer funded at the levels that it needs to be from the, from the uh, federal and state government. And I think, I think the ultimate, I think, sort of real, not even I think, I know that like real estate's ultimate goal is to somehow get the land that all of these NYCHA developments sit on, right? Like that is, in New York, everything is about land and NYCHA is occupying some really, really prime real estate. And so I know that's the end game, um, is to basically kick <laughs> kick all of the black and brown folks out of NYCHA and, 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 and redevelop the sites. Um, and I just don't know if there's a political power um, or willingness to actually want to stand up and fight against that. Um, but that is that is the that is the end goal, and people shouldn't kid themselves um, about it that. Seems like from what I know of the specifics of the way that that's happening right now, and this is you know way more about this. So this is I'm this is a question. The way that that is happening right now, mostly from what I understand, is through rad which is um like turning uh section eight units of of or section nine units of public housing into you know just basically units that are privatized in some way so they can get section eight vouchers and also through the NYCHA trust is that right yeah so uh things like rad um the NYCHA trust uh, which you know there's debate um, you know, some people think that it is a, a a form of privatization. Some people don't. Um, so you know, there's obviously been a, re- a robust uh, debate here in New York City about that. Um, you know, um, and I, you know, it's. I guess we could sort of like get into it and talk about that, but, um, you know, I. The, the ultimate responsibility uh, for the funding for NYCHA, right? It, it, the way I sort of look at it is the ultimate responsibility for funding for NYCHA lies at the feet of the federal and the state government. Um, and we have somehow allowed, especially the federal government, to just sort of, um, you know, get away with not funding it at, at its proper levels um, for a really long time. And... I don't I don't know if there's a if there's a way to actually reverse that um trend. Um but I mean that 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 would be the ultimate way that we keep NYCHA um truly affordable um 
for the folks who live there now is for the federal government to actually start funding it at its proper levels. Uh, I forget the, there's some weird number. I think it's like, I think they said that NYCHA actually needs like $4 billion to actually get it sort of up to code. I thought it was like $40 billion, but maybe. It might be 40. It might be, it might be 40. I know it was a four or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so that shows you how far behind, um, you know, we are in terms of like the money that's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's easier for them to come up with a scheme in which, you know, private developers come in and rehab units and then they become this sort of weird um, space that is, you know, um, a mix between, you know, uh, publicly funded and run. And then there's also this mix of like private. It's just a it's just a mess. I mean, it seems like one thing, you know, like I I don't know to what degree this is intentional or not, or there's, you know, people in power like sitting, you know, in their room being like, but like, you know, it's like what we need to happen. And I think what, you know, most leftists agree needs to happen is we need to actually add a lot more public housing right now for people. And like, you know, it's so in terms of like learned helplessness we're talking about earlier you know to keep people sort of constantly demoralized about the public housing that does exist and just make it you know seem like not only is it impossible to fund but you know it's not a very good place to live because people are not getting the repairs that they need you know and the perhaps the government is just completely incompetent to even manage such a thing you know it feels like it has far far ranging effects beyond just the fact that people who are currently living in NYCHA obviously deserve the repairs that they need. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, I think as governments, our governments used to understand that, that, that they had a role to play in, in building housing, right? So whether it was like NYCHA or whether it was something like Mitchell Lama, which is, you know, like a, a government and private partnership, I think governments understood that like, you know, one of the responsibilities is to build housing. And at some point we just sort of, I guess, forgot that or felt that it wasn't as important. And so we sort yeah. of like have started to outsource. Now we outsource it all to private developers. And that's not a healthy way to, you know, to run a, you know, run a city, right? Because our 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 goals aren't aligned, right? The goal of the government should be to house as many folks as possible. Right. The goal of private developers is they want to make as much money as possible. Right. And so the the fact that we're now strictly relying on them to, to, you know, to um, to fix our housing crisis. um, And I I did that in quotes. You can't see it, but I I did in the quotes because one of the other things that's sort of funny to me is, you know, you you will constantly hear these people talk about um, we need to build, 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 um, which I'm not. And I often get you know, called a NIMBY, which is fine. But, you know, those same people who call me a NIMBY can never find evidence of me saying that we shouldn't be building, right? Like, I've never said that. Um, well, what I have a problem with is the way that we, the way that we build. Um, yeah. But mm-hmm. those same folks who, you know, were constantly on the build, build, build um, sort of mantra, they never mention anything about the thousands of units that are being warehoused right now in the city, right? Um, those units could be 
you know, could be online and in a, in a matter of months, right? And we can start housing people immediately, but they have this sort of laser focus on projects that will be, that, you know, that, that won't be ready, you know, for like two, three, four or five years, right? And so it's, it's, it's another interesting thing that I've noticed about, you know, not just the sort of faux activists um, in the city, but also like a lot of politicians who constantly just sort of push this narrative of we just mm-hmm. need to be building, 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 um, um, exclusively. I think it's yeah. sort of weird. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciated um, getting your perspective on all of these topics. Um, is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap up today's episode? Um, yeah, no, I think I just, the, you know, the advice I always sort of give people is like, I know that a lot of this stuff is, it feels like you as one person can't do anything. Um, I think that's sort of the wrong mindset. Um, mm-hmm. I don't rely on, another thing I've been telling people recently is, um, don't rely on your elected officials. Like they're not going to come save you. Um, they're either incapable or they just don't want to. So I think it's I think it's incumbent on us in terms of, you know, like helping neighbors, like neighbors helping neighbors, like as individuals, like join join a local group that's like doing some kind of work in your community, whether it's like tenant organizing, could be like mutual aid, soup kitchen, just, you know, community board. Um, try to find something small that you can do. Um, and I think that's a good place to sort of start. That's like how I started. And absolutely yeah just get involved i guess is what i'm saying yeah thank you so much where can our listeners find you on the internet um yeah you can find me at uh m4bk so the letter m the the number four and then bk on um twitter and on instagram although i've i guess i'm not as active as i used to be but yeah, you can reach me there if you need to. That's good to not be as active. Like it's turning into such a house site. But anyway, you know, the, I I really appreciate you coming on the show, and it, it was great to it was great to hear absolutely things. Cool. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Muhannad Al-Sheikhi. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song is performed by Emily Fremgen and written by Emily with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's, and I am at Muhannad Al-Sheikhi. And Twitter is where you can find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is yours